Hi friends, I wanted to introduce this new interview. It is from the year 2008 when I released two books, Pagan Christianity with George Barna in January of 2008, and that book was followed up with the constructive sequel, Reimagining Church, which debuted in August 2008. The person who interviewed me was Jim Wallace, also known as Jay Warner Wallace, and he is arguably the greatest living Christian apologist today. I did not know much about him when he interviewed me. In fact, I was startled when I saw him on several episodes of the TV show Dateline, and uh, he is a cold case detective. Anyway, in this episode, you will listen to Jim interview me on pagan Christianity. And the interview occurred in 2008. There is a part two of the interview where he interviewed me on reimagining church. And so those two interviews go together side by side. In this podcast edition, we have combined both interviews into one audio. I will say that I'm recording this many years later, and my landmark book, Insurgents Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, does for the kingdom of God what pagan Christianity and reimagining church did for the subject of the church or the ecclesia. Insurgents both deconstructs our modern understandings of the kingdom of God, but it also constructs a brand new vision that I believe is faithful to both the New Testament and church history. You can check out the book at insurgents.org. For other audios I've done on the subjects of church, ecclesiology, the kingdom, you can check out the Christ is All podcast as well as the Insurgents podcast. Both of those podcasts are on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and any other podcast app that you use. Enjoy the audio, questions and answers about pagan Christianity and reimagining church. You can see the answers to objections on the website, paganchristianity.org. Enjoy. Frank, thank you so much for joining us on the Please Convince Me podcast. We are big, big fans. Would you be willing to kind of just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, let's see. Should I start out with my Major League Baseball career or my <laughs> writing books? I know. Is that a confusion sometimes for people? <laughs> yes. I uh, have been routinely confused with the Frank Viola, who was the Major League Baseball pitcher. I believe he played for the Twins and the Mets and uh, the Red Sox. But I recently found out that uh, he is routinely confused with me. Really? So people think I'm the pitcher, and they think he's the author, and I'm not sh so sure which one's worse. Well, that's quite a uh, statement that you actually have elevated it to the status of a baseball player now. <laughs> yeah. Well, someone was telling me that there's also a, a pigeon trainer named Frank Viola, <laughs> uh, as well as a football player uh, for college, I think. Wow. But anyway, it's uh, it's interesting. We have a lot of fun with it. In fact, one of my uh, my funniest memories was when this Presbyterian church had sent us an email inviting me to speak at this conference that they were having, and the and the woman who uh, issued the invitation was just so excited that we responded and so excited that we were willing to do it. And then, 
no. when she mentioned something about the baseball career, we realized oh, no. she uh, she got the wrong one. So that was, uh, that was that was kind of comical for us. Yeah, it sounds like. Just for those of you, uh, your listeners who are not familiar with the background of the book and some of uh, my work, I am someone who has been meeting in what I would call organic churches for 20 years. And to kind of expand that a little bit, uh, 20 years ago, I left the institutional church. Before that, I had been a part of uh, many, many different institutional churches, which were represented by many different denominations. My background is very eclectic. I think I started out in the uh, Pentecostal denominations, Church of God, Assemblies of God, and then moved on to um, Christian Missionary Alliance, became part of several different Baptist churches, that would include independent and southern, uh, which are very different, by the way, and uh, a whole mix of other mainline denominations, Presbyterian, Methodist, and Church of Christ. Had some time with the Plymouth Brethren, not long. What else? Oh, all of the different varieties and charismatic Christianity. And so that was pretty much my background. Add to that five different parachurch organizations. And I, I came to the place in my life, and I think I speak for millions of Christians, uh, if the studies are correct, I came to a place in my life where I was just burned out and tired and bored with church the way it was being done. And um, I noticed that many people were just going to go. For myself, I came to the place where it all looked the same to me. It didn't matter what denomination I went to or what particular church I went to. The liturgy was the same, essentially. You know, you go in, you're handed a bulletin, you sit and you watch the announcements, listen to them, and then someone comes up and begins the worship. Uh, Some churches it's a choir, some churches it's a music leader, some churches it's a worship team or band. And you kind of follow along, you know, you sing the songs and praise and worship as they're flipping transparencies or PowerPoint. Right, right. (laughs) And, you know, you're, you're standing, in some cases you're dancing. And you're singing, and then you sit down, and then there's other announcements, and maybe some special singing, and then the offering plates are being passed out, and then you have what many Christians consider to be the high point of the service, and that is the pastor preaches a sermon, uh, at which time you stare at the back of someone's head for 45 minutes to an hour, and then maybe there'll be more singing, and the benediction is given, and then you go home. And that's church in the minds of millions and millions of Christians. And for me... I came to the point in my spiritual life where I was bored to tears with it. There was something within me that longed for an experience of the body of Christ that went beyond that, that was deeper, richer, I would say higher, and that included mutual ministry where everyone was participating. And there was reality to it, and there was authenticity, and even some spontaneity. And what I discovered, Jim, was that I had experienced what I was longing for in many different settings outside church services Mm -hmm. and outside of church buildings. And I came to the conclusion that what the New Testament envisions for church, the definition of church, the experience of church, the reality of church, was something very, very different than what I was experiencing in the institutional church. So... Myself and some others, we took this huge step. For us, it was frightening. And we left the 
institutional church. And we started meeting in a home. We didn't have any idea what we were doing, except that we had the New Testament as our guide, and we thought, well, you know, Christians met in homes. They had open meetings. They ate together. They shared together. They broke bread together. They ministered one to the other. We were actually following our spiritual instincts. And that journey lasted a good long eight years, and it was so intense, and there was so much that happened in those eight years with that small group, which became larger because we did grow, that we really crammed 16 years into that eight-year experience. And it was during that time that I began to look very closely at the New Testament with the others uh, who I was meeting with, and we began to see what the church really was all about, or at least we began to see what the church was about. And we were having an experience of the Lord and of the body of Christ that matched what we were reading about in the New Testament. And one of the frequent questions I received from people was, where do you go to church? And this is the common question that Christians ask one another. Where do you go to church? And, of course, our answer was strange. You know, well, we don't really go to church. Uh, we meet with other brothers and sisters in a church, as a church. We're part of a church that does not have a building. It does not have a clergy. We do not have an order of worship. And, <laughs> right. and people, they would either stare at us as if we had come from Planet Ten, yeah. or uh, act as if they were ready to faint dead away. So that's when I began writing books, Jim, because I got so tired of trying to explain what we were doing that I, I had this idiotic idea that if I could put it in print and just say, good question, here, read this. <laughs> right, right, it would, easier. It would, A, save me the torment of trying to explain something that most people did not understand, and then, B, it would actually articulate what it is we were doing and why. Yeah. And uh, it's not something you can explain in a, a five-minute soundbite. I mean, there's a lot to it. No doubt. No doubt. Now, one of the questions I have for you, because this is something that I have personal experience with, I, I feel like my journey was very similar to yours uh, on staff at, at uh, churches as a pastor, uh, and, and it's at some point had the same realization that I, I was watching people watch me and I felt like I, that the folks who I was leading were not in the game. Uh, and I felt like I was starting to slip out of the game as well in terms of my active, uh, responsive life as a Christian. But, but let me ask you this question because this is something we struggle with even now. Uh, you, you come out of the tr institutional church and you, you have a, um, a template, um, a filter through which you're seeing everything. I mean, right. do you, did you just sit down in the, the first night in the, in, the, in the house, and were you able to kind of take off all of the institutional church like a set of clothing and, and begin anew, or was it a, a slower transitional process? Well, you know, for us in those days, it was a slow transitional process. We evolved, as it were. I think in those early days, uh, we were praying for the Lord to send us a pastor. Now, it didn't take long for us to realize that that was not God's thought. We, we were all young, and we were wanting someone older to kind of lead us along, but that kind of led us into a study of where the modern pastor came from. And when we realized that, and we realized what overseers were in the Church of Jesus Christ in the first century, and what Jesus and the apostles taught about this whole matter of oversight and pastoral care, we quickly changed our prayers. <laughs> right, that's interesting. Um, but I will say this, after that eight-year experience that I had, which was lots of experimentation, lots of learning, lots of discovery, we realized that there were other Christians who were doing this a lot longer than us. Right. And 
we received help from them. After that eight-year experience, this is where I was going. The brothers and sisters there, we had a special meeting, and they laid hands on me and sent me to begin planting churches. And that really gets close to the answer to your question, because I think the enormous help that someone who has had experience being a simple brother uh, or sister, but someone who has had experience in a living, breathing, organic expression of the church and has had the uh, opportunity to detox from traditional religion and has had the, the breaking that needs to happen, that has to go on in that kind of church experience. My point being is that when you have individuals like this who already have experience, they're ahead of the curveball. You know, they've learned what this whole thing is about and all the problems that happen and how to navigate through those problems. When you have the help of such a person or persons, then that is an enormous benefit for a group of Christians who are just beginning. And it will move them far, far ahead of this journey and cause them to uh, avoid many, many of the common pitfalls and actually cause them to detox, as it were, uh, a lot quicker than if you just have a group of Christians that leave the institutional church, start meeting in a home, and, you know, have no idea what they're doing. And that's going to be a long, long process if they can even survive. Right. Many of the groups that meet outside the religious system uh, do not survive. One of the main reasons is because they unfortunately were not able to or haven't even thought about receiving some outside help. And in the New Testament, you find that there is a pattern, there is a principle that you have people who are planting churches and then helping them as they go through problems. If you look at the letters of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle James, Peter, those guys were writing letters to churches that were in crises. And I have often said that most of your New Testament is made up of church planters, and this is what apostolic workers are, they're church planters, among other things. It's made up of church planters writing letters to churches in crisis. And in the book, Pagan Christianity, which is a deconstructive book that challenges many of our traditional practices in the institutional church on biblical grounds and on the grounds of church history. In that book, we do talk about the uh, ministry of church planters in helping groups of Christians not only getting started in meeting in an organic way under the headship of Jesus Christ, but also navigating them through the problems and helping them to detox uh, religiously. So that would be my answer to your specific yeah. question, Jim. Well, let's just talk specifically about uh, pagan Christianity right now, because that's why we've asked you to, to come on. This is a book that's been incredibly helpful for us as a church. We were still in a model where we're just now a church in a house instead of a house church, and that's that's something we, we saw as a slower transitional process for us. Right. But your book has been very powerful. What, was that your intention in writing the book originally? What was your first purpose in writing this book? Well, you know, that is an excellent question, and I appreciate you asking it because it's key to understanding the book. There are two places in the book where we state the governing motivation. It's stated in the very beginning, and it's also stated at the very end. And we effectively say this, and I'm not quoting it, I'm just doing this from memory, but sure, it says, we have written this book for one reason, and that is we are trying to clear away the debris 
and the clutter that hinders Jesus Christ from being central, from being supreme, from being the head, the functional head of his church again. And so my motivation for writing it, and, and George and I just did a recent interview, the 70-minute interview, and we both talked about why we wrote the book. So I, I won't answer for George. Okay. Your listeners can listen to his own answer. But I know that there are millions of Christians who are disaffected and dissatisfied spiritually with church the way it is today. I was one of them 20 years ago. That's when I left. And uh, the data right now, the studies show that it's in the drinking water. I mean, it's one million adult Christians leave the institutional church every year. Right now, there are between, oh gosh, there's millions of Christians. I lost track after 20 million, but there's millions of Christians who have left the institutional church in our country, United States. And there are 112 million Christians that do not attend a traditional church worldwide. Now, those numbers are staggering. And incidentally, let me just interject a parenthesis here. we got many, many books on church renewal that have been written over the last 50 years. And to my mind, those books, many of them, not all of them, many of them, would be best represented by this statement, they are rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. Yeah. In other words, they're tweaking the system. They're tweaking the inherent structure. They are not going to the root problem. And what pagan Christianity attempts to do is it goes to the root. It's akin to taking a look at a house that needs work, and instead of doing a patchwork job, going to the foundation and exposing all the cracks right. and right. saying, you know what, I mean, we can't renovate it. We've got to absolutely tear it down and build something else. And that's the radical position that pagan Christianity takes, but it does this by documenting the story of where we got our church practices from with over a thousand footnotes and 300 books in the bibliography, and we document everything we say. But let me get back to this issue, the headship of Jesus Christ and why we wrote the book. Those Christians, many of whom are sitting in pews bored to death, many of whom are very dissatisfied, very frustrated, I'll add this. Many pastors are this way too, Jim. If my mail is accurate, and I believe it is, I get letters from pastors every week thanking us for writing this book because they are desperate, they are frustrated, they are dissatisfied, and they know something's wrong. And they have said that the book has put the finger on the problem, and it's, it's causing drastic change. But anyway, we want these Christians to know that their spiritual instincts, what they're experiencing, the fact that they're not happy in the institutional church, whether they've left it or not, we want them to know that, A, they're not alone, B, church history stands on their side, C, the Bible, the Scripture, the New Testament stands on their side, and then lastly, I guess that would be E, if I'm correct, or D, yes. I lost count, uh, <laughs> the last point would be there is another way to meet as a church that is in harmony with the spirit of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And so my heart is to see more of God's people gathering in an organic way because I want Jesus Christ to be head 
of his church again in as many places as possible. That's the heartbeat. That's the heart thrive. Yes. And uh, the underlying point that we're making in every chapter is we are challenging many of our church practices on the grounds that these things we believe, and we show this historically, has not come from the New Testament. It's not come from the Old Testament even, although it's been justified by it in some cases. It's not come from Jesus or the apostles. It's come out of Greco-Roman tradition, much of it. And secondly, we believe that much of it hinders the headship of Jesus Christ. It actually subverts the headship of Christ, and it suppresses the functioning of his body. And so you can think of it as a book that's trying to liberate God's people and put them back in the center of their faith, which is enthroning Jesus Christ as supreme, central, and as head of his body, not in religious rhetoric, but in reality. Yeah, that's really important, because I think when people uh, hear this, they can interpret that statement in a number of different ways. But what I got out of you know, looking through your book, I just want to tell people who are listening that you've done a, done a very nice systematic uh, a job of looking at some of the institutions of the church, uh, starting with the church building, the order of worship, the sermon, the pastor, uh, the kind of uh, costumes that we find ourselves wearing, the, the ministry, ministers of music and tithing and clergy salaries and Christian education and, and all these kind of elements that we see in the church. You've done a, done a great job of looking at the source of these uh, practices and asking the hard questions. Is this something that actually is born from the New Testament teaching and the first century believers, or is this something that we've kind of added over the years, right. and now we can't separate the two? We can't. But, but you get back to this headship of Jesus. This is so important to me. Uh, as my biggest takeaway from this was the realization that as long as I stood as the leader of this church, Jesus would not be. Right on. And, and that is so uh, it sounds very radical, and I'm sure, Frank, you're taking a beating from those who still cling to the older paradigm, because it's so hard for us to make paradigm shifts. I don't care who we are. And well, I, I'm not taking a beating, but I am getting hate mail from Quakers now. Yeah. <laughs> so you're seeing some interesting uh, aspects of our of our personalities, I'm sure, as we kind of react to this. But, but this is the key point for me. And that's what, what people need to hear you talk. They need to understand that what you're saying, really, it's going to mean that less of us in order for more of Jesus to, to be present in our meetings. And that is the hardest thing to give away, I think, for most people who lead a church. Yeah, well, absolutely. The longest chapter in the book is on where the modern pastoral office came from. Right. And right now, uh, for those people who are listening to this still, the ones who haven't turned off their computer and <laughs> threw a rock at the monitor, yeah. they're thinking, well, what are you talking about? Pastors are in the New Testament, to which I will reply, the word pastor in its noun form is only used one time in right. the entire New Testament, mm -hmm. and it's plural. It's pastors, and it means shepherds. And what we have done is we have taken the 16th century view of the Reformation, this is when the Protestant pastor was invented during the Reformation. We're taking the 16th century view that has been left untouched for 500 years, and we have imputed that understanding into the New Testament word shepherds. And we have said, ah, here's what a pastor is. See, the Bible talks about pastors. It's very much like the Catholic faith taking the word priest. Christians are called priests in the New Testament numerous times. Right. And looking at that word priest and saying, see, they're priests yeah. in the New Testament, but the interpretation is that's those guys running around with black costumes with a clerical collar and they don't marry and that's what a priest is. Well, right. this is the problem.
problem. We read back into the New Testament our present practices. Here is the Protestant pastor, and I'm going to put it in the form of a question and a challenge. Show me a man in the New Testament that preaches to the same congregation week after week, month after month, year after year. Show me a man in the New Testament who is viewed as the head of the church, a local church. Show me a man in the New Testament that represents a local church to the world and to his city and to the public. And by that I mean if I'm going to write a letter to the First Baptist Church in Atlanta, I will write the letter to Dr. Charles Stanley because he represents the church. Okay, well, show that to me in the New Testament. Show me one letter that was written to a pastor. Uh, the other thing would be show me a man in the New Testament that marries the living and buries the dead. Show me a man in the New Testament that officiates the Lord's Supper or the communion. Show me that person. And my suggestion would be if you can find that individual who fits that description, which is the description of the modern pastor, then... Uh, George Barna is prepared to give you $1 million. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. Yeah, but you're uh, absolutely I, right, though. I feel free saying that, Jim, because there is no such person in the New Testament. You cannot find him there. You can take your Bible, pick it up over your head, turn it upside down, shake it real hard, and he is not going to fall out of the New Testament. He doesn't exist. He was an invention during the Reformation. And in the book, we talk about what first century shepherds were. And it's very different, galaxies apart from the person that we call the pastor, meaning his office. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And I, I just wanted, I, I, you know, it's funny, when we first started our website, please convince me, uh, it was years ago, and I still wore that title of pastor. And so I, my email is pastorjim at pleaseconvinceme.com. And in the last year, and I, it's just because it's so labor-intensive to take it off of, you know, 200 pages from the website, uh, I've told my wife, I said, you know, we really, I'd have to get rid of that title. So the least thing I said we could do is we could kind of change our the intros on the podcast because I feel like um, in order, the first step has to be you've got to kind of strip out the clothing that you're wearing as pastor. And one of those right. things is simply the title of pastor. That's and, right. You know, I, I just I cringe sometimes when someone in the church in our group will introduce me to some friend we haven't uh, met before as pastor, and I'm like, oh gosh, I haven't done a good job of, of moving <laughs> away from the model that still limits us. And, and I know we're going to get tight on time here, Frank, but let me just say this: uh, I this book I think is powerful for our listeners for a couple of reasons. Our listeners are, are folks who have a very different approach to their faith. It's a very reasoned approach that examines the issues and is prepared, I hope, to be able to defend these issues and defend what they believe in the culture around us. That's really kind of the, the, the viewer, the listenership I think we have. And I want to encourage all of those folks who, who have already said that, hey, my faith is not blind to begin with. I want your faith experience to not be blind and uninformed as well. And I think this book does a great job of challenging us to deconstruct the, the truth of how we've been living as Christians to see what really waits for us. There's something more out there for us that we've kind of ignored, I think, in a long way. And this is a chance for us to get in touch with really true Jesus as the leader of our, our family instead of your the, the, a pastor or maybe be you who are listening to this who are pastoring a group and really need to understand the relationship between you're holding on to that, that control and allowing Jesus to take control of that. Would you agree? I mean, there are a couple of things. One is there's some people who have the idea, and, and I just say it's pretty pervasive in the Protestant evangelical world, that what's important is your Christian life, but the church is not important. 
you know, the church is just something supplemental, it's optional, you know, you're supposed to go to church, but I mean, the real thing that's important is the Christian life. To which I would respond, you cannot find that dichotomy in the New Testament anywhere. In the Scripture, in the New Testament, there is very little difference between the Christian life as an individual and the Christian life as a body of believers, as a corporate body of believers. The church, properly understood, it's not a denomination, it's not a service, it's not a building, it's not something we attend. The church is the environment in which the Christian grows and lives and expresses himself or herself. It's our habitat. It is the people of God with whom we live this life. And in biblical terms, it's a colony that's come out of heaven onto this earth. It is the expression of the kingdom of God. When people visit a group of believers, they meet a group of believers that are living a shared life together in community and following their Lord together in community. And each of those members are actually and literally members of the body of Jesus Christ with various gifts. When a someone encounters such a group of Christians that are being the church on this earth, they touch the kingdom of God, and they actually encounter God himself, because God dwells in the church. And so consequently, we have separated to our peril the Christian life and this thing called church, when in fact in the New Testament, the two go hand in hand. You can't really have the one properly functioning without the other, meaning you cannot be a healthy Christian if you are pulled outside of a body of believers that's living as a shared life community. The Christian life just doesn't work, and it's never been meant to work outside of that context. And this is one of the problems, as George Barna has shown, uh, as to why there's so little transformation, spiritual transformation, in the institutional church among God's people. It's because we have redefined church to be a system, almost a business, really, an organization that has very few points of contact with the New Testament understanding of church. And so it's absolutely essential. If someone's interested in following Jesus Christ, then they absolutely have to be interested in the church of Jesus Christ and should seek to understand what she is. And I say she because one of the things that the church is in God's viewpoint, it is the bride of Christ on the earth, the bride, the body, the family of God, etc., these terms, Jim, are just so familiar to us that for the average Christian it has no resonance. When I say the family of God, and I'm using the dominant metaphor for the church when I say that, boy, I know what that's like. I live in that experience. I've had that experience where people who are Christians, who I lived in community with, who I viewed them as my true brothers and sisters, and likewise, they viewed me that way, and we took care of one another, and we helped one another, and we encouraged one another to follow the Lord. And when one's down, we pick them up, and vice versa. And this is all in the New Testament. But to live in it is something very different. And I want to say something else regarding some of the things you were saying about the title, Pastor, and all. I just want to tell you I have great respect for you, brother, because there are so many men in the clergy who hear these things, who have, say, read Pagan Christianity and some of the other books, and for some reason have only chosen to take those things that are convenient and not the hard things and not the things that really matter and have sort of, you know, done a patchwork operation on their own situation and still retain that clergy 
mentality and that the hierarchical structure and even the style because there's a lot about clergymen that's in the very style mm-hmm. of how they operate and this is not true for everyone but I'm speaking in generalities here folks and it's the fact that you have come to the place where you realize that the title pastor is something that is antithetical to the spirit of the New Testament. That's right. And you admit that, and you understand there is a problem with people looking to you as a quote-unquote, you know, a man of the cloth or whatever you want to call it. It's something different. And uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, you cannot find this in the New Testament. In fact, you can find the exact opposite. And uh, one of the things that Jesus said that is so easily overlooked probably one of the the most overlooked and ignored and forgotten passages. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he says, you know how the Gentiles lead? He essentially said that they lead by human hierarchy. One is above the other, and the other is above the other, and there's a chain of command. And then he turned around to the disciples, and he said, it shall not be so among you. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah, it really is. Uh, And yet, we just I'm speaking in generalities here, but by and large, the institutional church has just sort of turned a blind eye to that. And so many other places where Jesus said, don't let any man call you rabbi, master, father, teacher, you know, throw in the word bishop, pastor, whatever it is, these titles, honorific titles that give people sort of first-class status and then everybody else is second-class. And one of the things we take dead aim at in the book, Pagan Christianity, is the whole clergy-laity dichotomy. Uh, I call it a class system, you know, the clergy and then the laity, the professionals and then the volunteers. And that entire mindset, that entire structure, Jim, is totally against and contradictory to the spirit of the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus Christ, and the apostles. And that's why Karl Barth had made the comment that the word laity is the worst in all of human vocabulary. And scholars like James D.G. Dunn said that the clergy-laity dichotomy is one of the worst heresies in the Christian faith. I mean, just powerful statements by first-rate scholars whom evangelical Christians look up to. And we have these uh, things mentioned in the book as well as the church history, as well as the biblical references. And if your listeners are thinkers, they use their faculty of reason, they will appreciate this book, I believe. Well, listen, I, Frank, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I know your schedule has got to be just overwhelming right now, and I just, uh, I'm just i just so indebted to you for taking the time because I think this is part of the journey uh, of Christian, our Christian journey, which is tied in so uh, closely with the kind of uh, uh, approach that we've taken at Please Convince Me. I don't think they can be separated, and I, just, I very seldom will ever talk about this aspect of my own journey uh, on our podcast. This is a great way to kind of start talking now and, and to get this dialogue open. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of feedback from this. So, so Frank, without holding you any longer, let me just say thank you so much. I want to encourage all of our listeners to, to get a copy of Pagan Christianity. It will it'll change the way you see your faith. It will change the way you see the, the connection you have with the church that you're in. And I think it will challenge all of us to take the first steps to reclaim our faith. So, uh, Frank, once again, thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. Jim, it's been my privilege and honor. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I want your listeners to know that there is a website. It's paganchristianity.org. That's paganchristianity.org, and that is a huge website that not only has huge discounts on the book, but it also has many bonus chapters, sample chapters, 
reviews, questions and answers, and uh, people can even contact me on that site as well. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that I interviewed Frank Biola, who at the time had written a book called Pagan Christianity. And I got a great response on that podcast. And so what I'm going to do this week, we're going to uh, interview Frank once again, uh, but related to his new book, the follow-up from um, the first book, Pagan Christianity. And in some ways, it's an important follow-up as we uh, seek to kind of reimagine the church. And that's exactly what Frank's book is all about. So I'm hoping that this week uh, you'll get a chance to listen to Pagan Christianity first if you didn't hear that uh, interview. But certainly this interview will be of some, some value to you as well. Uh, and again, when we start this kind of a process, you know, it's hard to interview somebody in 45 minutes or so and uh, on a, an issue that's as deep as this issue really is and do much justice to the topic at all. So uh, it's, it's really a value, I think, uh, for all of us to go out and do the heavy lifting and read the book uh, that we are talking about uh, that examines the church. And see if, if they're uh, measured, of course, against the Scriptures, and see if it, in fact, has some value to us as Christians. So here, you know, you find yourself in a position where you're doing a podcast, and you're actually suggesting that people go out and get this book. And I always hate to, to sound like a salesman for anything. I can tell you this, though. There's no profit in it for me to suggest you read this book. It's, it's really, a, a, I hope, uh, it's a way to kind of um, push ourselves to examine ourselves and to always be in this self-examination mode. And so I think we're constantly self-examining uh, in order to kind of decide which, which of the two issues are at hand here. Is it a matter of, of us depending on our culture and reflecting a church uh, experience that is really just a, saturated by our culture and a direct reflection of our culture? Or are we truly experiencing Christ in a way that is definitive and is distinctive to the first century church? Anyway, that's kind of where I'm at as a church leader, and I'm always self-examining and trying to decide if we are uh, making progress in this regard. And so I'm always in conversation with others who are looking at the same issues, of which Frank Viola is perhaps the leader in this uh, area. Change is a very difficult thing, and a lot of people will resist change. So just listen to the next 45 minutes or so with an open mind and an open heart, and go back and listen to that first podcast as well. So uh, without much further delay, here is uh, Frank Viola. Welcome back to our podcast here, Frank. This is Frank Viola. I want to introduce you to everyone who has maybe not had a chance to hear the first podcast we did together, and probably they, they know, Frank, who you are from your writing. But let me just take a second to introduce to everyone Frank Viola, who's written a, several very important books, most recently a book called Pagan Christianity, and Frank was on our show uh, several months ago uh, talking about that book, and now a new book he's just finished and start, uh, published this month, I believe, called Reimagining Church. And it's got a subtitle of Pursuing the Dream of Organic Christianity. So after we did our last podcast, I'll be honest with you, we had quite a flurry of emails and responses to uh, the things we were talking about, as you might imagine. And let me just begin, if I can be so bold, as to read a quote out of your new book, which I th thought was uh, striking. Now I'm going to dig it up. Here it is. And it's uh, from page 31, the very first uh, lines in chapter 1 of your book, and this is what you uh, quoted from Dresden James. I'll just read it, the quote. A truth's initial commotion is directly proportional to how deeply the lie was believed. It wasn't the world being round that agitated people, but that the world wasn't flat. When a well-packaged web of lies has been sold gradually to the masses over generations, the truth will seem utterly preposterous and its speaker a raving lunatic. And you quoted that from Dresden James. Now, I imagine in the last several months, you have been perceived by some to be that raving lunatic. Am I right? 
uh, there's probably one or two people out there that would say that. Yeah, exactly. And I and I had some of that in response to our podcast because, as you know, uh, you and I think alike on some of these issues, and I've been exploring some of the very things that uh, you have written about in uh, pagan Christianity. So, well, bless your heart. Well, now tell me. Let's just. Uh, I, I wanted to take a second before we jumped into the new book, just to kind of cover some of the the beating you may have taken over the old book. You tell me where are some of the areas that you think you've gotten the most resistance from people who read your first book. You know, it's it's really really interesting. Pagan Christianity, when it came out in January, with George Barna, of course, as the co-author of that book, it took off like a rocket. And it became a bestseller very, very quickly. And we're now in, let's see, nine months after its release, and it's still on all the bestseller lists, still doing very well on Amazon.com even. The interesting thing is the initial response came mostly from some pastors in the institutional church, most of whom were very upset by the book because it basically challenged the institutional form of the modern pastoral office. So we got we got quite a bit of flack on that, but the tide turned somewhere in the middle between January and September, and we started getting letters, a constant stream of letters from pastors, Jim, who were saying, thank you so much for writing this book. I'm not crazy after all. I have known these things to be true for many years, and now, with this confirmation, I'm being pushed over the edge. I've got to do something about it. I'm having a crisis of conscience. And I don't mean one or two letters. I'm talking about dozens of letters like that. We, we've even have posted these, uh, some of these letters, just a sampling of them, on my blog, which most of the correspondence we've gotten, at least for me, and I know George has gotten a fair bit too, I've gotten um, over 10,000 emails since January, since the book released, and I would say without blinking that over 90% of them have been incredibly positive. And people are just really being reaffirmed in what they have known all along deep down inside. So really, there's just been a small percentage of opposition to the book in comparison to the overwhelming positive voice. And the very fact that it's a bestseller, Jim, I think it says something about what's going on in the hearts of God's people, you know? Yeah. Um, they're open to this, and uh, they want to learn more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm going to tell you that um, we should probably just tell some people who maybe haven't had a chance to read that book yet that that book, uh, Pagan Christianity, is an, uh, is an effort uh, on your part, and actually a, a great effort uh, to kind of take a look at some of the things that we have come to accept as part of our Christian life in church and trace back their origin to see if they really are biblical or if these are things we have picked up over the years culturally from our pagan surroundings. And so you examine things, so let's read some of the chapter headings, like the church building, the order of worship, the sermon, the pastor, the Sunday morning costumes, the ministers of music, tithing and clergy salaries, baptism and the Lord's Supper, Christian education, how we approach the New Testament, how we even view the Savior, and you've kind of said, okay, are these things that we actually um, believe and uh, approach from a biblical perspective, or are these things that we now are only seeing through the lens of our culture and the pagan surroundings around us? In other words, are any, is any of our approach to any of these things actually biblical? Right. Now, that just in its face, if that's all you knew about this book, you can see why there might be a stir. Sure. And people are pretty shocked when they look at the table of contents because they assume certain things. But then when they actually get into reading the book, 
so many of our readers have said, I have never had so many aha moments in my life. I mean, it just is blowing my mind to see where all the things that we have taken for granted and just assumed were rooted in Scripture, where they came from. And and we're going a step further. We're not just saying, you know, this came out of Greco-Roman customs instead of from Jesus or the Apostles or the New Testament. We're going a step further and we're saying, okay, are these practices really helping and in line with the vision that God had for the church in the beginning, or do they contradict it? And where we're coming from is a perspective of not only saying, well, these, these things have origins, many of them have origins and pagan roots, that's one thing, but we're going a step further and we're saying many of them have actually redefined the church in a way that is in contradiction to the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And that's where it gets real serious, because it's one thing to say, well, this came out of paganism. That's one thing to say that. But it's another thing to say, this actually subverts God's intention for the church according to the New Testament. Yeah, and that, that's the thing I think that is very powerful here. And let me just say one thing about your perception of how the tide started to turn and you started to hear from pastors. And maybe this is true or untrue. I'm not sure, but let me just throw it out to you. Our group does a lot of work with other groups who believe in things that are very different than us. So, for example, we would go every year, we still do, to Utah in June, and we spend time a week or, or so, eight days, talking to LDS believers about what it is they believe and and just trying to kind of work through some of the issues that we think are of concern. Now, we do that, uh, and we, we've learned over the years how to do it in a way that is very approachable, very uh, conversational, and in a places that are very conversational. But what we discovered is, is that our first response from people is typically that there is a, a sense that, you know, I'm going to resist— even though you may be showing me something that isn't even as, as clearly evidentially true, I'm going to resist. But that's a stone that's placed in their shoe. And then within several months of having that stone placed in their shoe, they have a chance to pull it out once in a while and look at it and see what it is that's bugging them. Yeah. And over the course of time, then we get this email back a year later. You know, I talked to you a year ago, and when you first talked to me, uh, it's a typical response as humans, I think, that we resist. And then at some point, it, it hits us. This is very true. And I'm just thinking, as you're sharing this story, of a gentleman who has a very, very well-read blog on the Internet. And when pagan Christianity first came out, he kind of jumped on the bandwagon of, of a certain number of bloggers who just trashed the book. Now, the interesting thing, Jim, is that 65% of those bloggers didn't even read the book. And yet they reviewed it right, <laughs> negatively. Right. Some old boy put together a uh, video on YouTube making fun of the fact that so many bloggers were reviewing the book and they hadn't even broken open the first page, you know? Right. This one individual wrote a negative review on the book, trashed it, basically discouraged people from reading it. Well, seven months later, he puts a post on his blog and he says, you know what? I think Varna and Viola really did have a lot of good points that we need to take seriously and we need to listen to. Here was another example of time being one's ally and changing our perceptions. I know if, if you were to give this very book to me 30 years ago, I would have looked at you as if you had come from Planet 10. Okay, now that's me. I wrote the book, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I know exactly <laughs> what you're so, saying. So our views change, and the Lord uses various things in our lives to change our perspectives. And I think that this is what's happening uh, to a, a number of people, as you said. It's just real interesting, and I'd like to see what happens five years from now as a result of this.
Yeah, absolutely. This this is one of those books that I talk about in terms of stretching a culture. You know, there are some kind of there are se- several rubber band books that that uh, actually stretch us out to a place where we're uncomfortable. But it's not long before uh, we are comfortable there, and then we're able to take another stretch in some new direction. So maybe that's what you're really doing with the new book, too. Now, before we get to that, let me just uh, ask you one more question about the old book. And so I purchased, I think, seven or eight of these to give to the men in our church who uh, I thought were really probably most interested in, in, in the future would be. And I had everybody read it, okay? And we sat down. And this morning uh, at breakfast, I asked one of these uh, leaders in our church, just what would you ask Frank? I'm going to be talking to him today. And, uh, you know, we talked about this as a group. And the question he had is, is have you, you know, he kind of relates the experience for him, kind of like the Samaritan woman, you know, who comes to Jesus and says, you know, we worship, uh, you know, God in this way, and we know that you Jews worship Him in that way. And he wondered if you found yourself, or do you find yourself in a position? And I'll be honest with you: when I was in seminary, I had a seminary professor, but he used to always tell me, "Just don't, don't get caught in the trap of thinking that it's one or the other, and only one way is the right way." And he used to tell me, "Be careful of people like." And guess whose name he mentioned? <laughs> Can you imagine? He mentioned you. As oh, the wow. these ex- you made it to seminary, isn't that something? <laughs> and uh, as you know, kind of an example of you know, be careful of those uh, extremists. So just tell us all for those who have questions about this: Are you in the position right now where you would argue that the only way, in some ways, you're saying you know, pursuing the dream of organic Christianity? Are we um, the only ones? Are we the only ones who get it? Are we the only ones who are actually, in that sense, saved? And everybody else who is in the traditional church, are these folks in risk? Yeah, well, no, I, I would never say that. Well, let me take some time to unpack that particular question, my answer to that question. Okay. Say, I am not a person who advocates house church per se. In other words, the house church movement is a very, very large thing. And, you know, we've got, gosh, in, in the movement itself, you got people who are meeting in homes just like they would meet in an institutional church. The only difference is they're meeting in a home and not a religious building. Okay, they have all the same rituals, the same leadership structure, etc. You've got some house churches that, quite frankly, um, I would consider to be cults, very dangerous. You've got some house churches that are basically so shallow, you would be hard-pressed to drown a gnat in them. And you've got a lot of house churches that, let's put it this way, Jesus Christ is not the centrality, nor is he the living, breathing reality of those particular churches. It's just a group of Christians that meet together in a home. It's more like a social club. My point is is that I do not believe that house church, quote-unquote, is the only way to have a church, because the real question comes down to, what do you even mean by house church? And so consequently, George Barna and I, we don't argue for house church. In fact, we even criticize house churches, many of them, in the book Pagan Christianity. But we talk about something called the organic church, or the church as an organism, or the organic expression of the church. And what we mean by that is basically what we see in the first century. The church is not a building. It's not a ritual. It's not Sunday morning for two hours a service. It's not a denomination. It's not even all the Christians in the whole world, the body of Christ. It is the church, when we refer to it, we're talking about a local body of believers who have Jesus Christ dwelling in them, and they're living as a shared life community, and they're expressing Christ together. And the church has a DNA, and it also has a certain way she expresses herself in the earth. And Jesus Christ is the living, breathing head of the church. He is its life, 
and it lives as a family. It lives as a bride who's in love with Christ. It's very distinct from anything else on the earth, particularly American businesses, <laughs> which many, many institutional churches, I'm sorry, but the structure and the method of operation is very much like, almost identical to your typical business. And that's one of the criticisms we make in pagan Christianity. So consequently, I'm not an advocate of house church per se. Uh, that's number one. Number two, if the question is, does God use the institutional church, the answer is absolutely. So I would say to your friend, to my mind, God uses all forms of the church. That would include all the Protestant churches that exist. That would include the Catholic Church, all the different segments of it. That would include the Eastern Orthodox Church. God uses the institutional church because his people are in it. But the question that we're asking and the question we're answering in the book is, what does the New Testament teach about the church? That's the question. What does the New Testament say about the church? What does God's Word reveal to us about how the church expresses herself in the earth? Does it say anything about church practice, or are we just basically left to our own opinions and whims and fads and whatever we want to do? We can create the church in our own image if we want, you know? Is that what the Bible leaves us with? And so we're asking a different question. This question is way beyond, you know, well, who's saved, who's not saved. I mean, that to me is, I'm not even interested in asking a question like that when it comes to the church. As far as I'm concerned, if someone's, you know, repentant and believes in Jesus Christ, they're saved, you know. But this is a question of what does the New Testament actually teach about the church. And these two books are an attempt to answer that question from a historical and a biblical standpoint. What pagan Christianity does is it shows us historically what the church isn't. Yes. If we look in the New Testament, and then we compare it to what we have on the earth today that calls itself the church, we believe we're going to see a huge dichotomy. They're galaxies apart. And so pagan Christianity shows us what the church isn't. And what the next book, the new book, Reimagining Church, does is it says, okay, we've seen what the church isn't, according to the New Testament. What then is the church? And that's what Reimagining Church seeks to do. It seeks to present a picture of what church really is, according to the mind of God and according to the New Testament. I try to lay it out as clearly as I can, and as you know from reading the book, it's very, very thorough. Yes, it is. There's uh, one chapter that all it does is answer all the common objections. Right. And I would want to say one other thing, too, as a footnote to this. One of the major points or statements that people like to make about these books, or particularly pagan Christianity, they don't really say it about reimagining church, because reimagining church is more of a positive vision. But people like to say, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And my response is, there's only one baby worth saving, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the babe from Bethlehem. Everything else is clutter and debris. And if you're going to tell me that the clergy system, the rituals that we have borrowed from Greco-Roman paganism, spending $230 billion on church buildings and maintenance, if you're going to tell me that is the baby then I would disagree with you. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So the real question is, what baby are we trying to save? Yeah, no, I think that I, my understanding, too, as I'm looking at Reimagining Church when I first got it from you, and I'm, I'm kind of going through the book, is it was the perfect and, and most expected kind of sequel you almost would have to write. And for those who would argue that, you know, Frank's just all about rattling the cage and complaining, and, and I hear this, these kinds of words like on some of the blogs afterwards, you know, that and the reality of it is that argument might be made if you had only written the one book, Pagan Christianity. But you haven't done that. You've, you've said, okay, here's before we can ever go to any kind of a solution or any kind of change at all, 
all. We'd have to first believe there's something that needs to be changed. Exactly. So right you, you start off with pagan Christianity to say, okay, look, guys, it's tough to say this, but someone has to call you on the carpet. Here's what I see. And you lay it out. And now, of course, if you stop there, then all you are is a whiner. Constructed something, but you've not built anything up to replace That's it. correct. And you have done that with Reimagining Church. And exactly. I think it's interesting when I look at the, the, for those of you who haven't picked up the book yet, you know, part one is about the community and gatherings. And part two is about leadership and accountability. And so you go through reimagining, and each chapter starts off that way, you know, reimagining the church as an organism. That's a huge issue. But, you know, I'd look at this, Frank, and to be honest, I read through it and I started to circle and make notes in the margins and dog ear everything. And then I realized there's no way we can we could do this justice in two hours of talk. So we're not even going to try, but we're going to hit on some key points here. You already brought up one of them, which I thought was one of the first things that I thought was powerful, which is your whole approach as to why you would even pursue this question. It's because you believe there is a DNA to the church, and you listed on page uh, 45 of your book what that DNA is. And let me just read that for everybody. The DNA of the church produces certain identifiable features. Some of them are the experience of authentic community, a familial love, and devotion of its members to one another, the centrality of Jesus Christ, the native instinct to gather together without static ritual, the innate desire to form deep-seated relationships that are centered on Christ, the internal drive for open participatory gatherings, and the loving impulse to display Jesus to a fallen world. Okay, I think the reason why you and I would pursue anything other than the traditional environment we once were part of is because we had a sense that these things that were the common DNA of the first century church we weren't experiencing those things in the traditional form we were in. Absolutely. It, and, and I think you and I would both agree, if it was happening there, there'd be no reason to change it. Absolutely. <laughs> it seems that in order to experience these seven or eight things, you find yourself stripped down in a much more organic form. Exactly. Well, that's really it. When we become Christians, it's not just a change of religious belief. It's not just a change of theological or philosophical perspective. It's not just a mental assent to certain presuppositions. When we become Christians, we become, to use the language of the New Testament, new creations. We become new creatures. Some authors translate that to be a new humanity. Other authors translate it as a new species. Paul says that there is Jew, there is Gentile, but then there's also this other entity called the church. It's in 1 Corinthians 10, you'll see that. Paul says we're neither Jew nor Gentile. We're something different. We're a new creation. And as a new creation, each Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, and they also have a regenerated spirit, a renewed spirit. And that spirit, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, gives us new instincts. It gives us new faculties. Scripture talks about spiritual vision, spiritual sight, perceiving things in the Lord. We have spiritual instincts that weren't there before. And those spiritual instincts will always drive us to one another in our pursuit and in our following of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity was never an individualistic endeavor. It was always corporate. And our spiritual instincts will drive us to meet around Jesus Christ in a very, very simple way, without all this other stuff that we've added to it. And when Christians get in touch with their spiritual instincts, that's what happens. There's something within them that says, this isn't it. You know, when they're in an organization that is providing a religious service, their spiritual instincts are crying out. They're actually screaming for something deeper, something, you know, whether it's fellowship, whether it's an encounter with Jesus Christ, whether it's the authenticity of being with other believers in close-knit community, being family with one another, all the things that mark the church. 
their spiritual instincts. And so what I try to do in reimagining church is paint the picture of what the church is and what our spiritual instincts lead us to. And what's so fascinating is when you paint that picture, you know what it looks like? It looks exactly like the first century church. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> it looks I... exactly like the first century Christians, you know, accepting that they wore togas and they spoke Greek and Hebrew and they didn't have electricity and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. in its actual expression, here's a body of believers that's consumed with Jesus Christ and in love with one another. And they don't have all the things that marked paganism and Judaism. They don't have religious buildings. They don't have a sacred priesthood. They don't have sacred rituals, etc., etc. They have something that's living and vibrant. And we are rediscovering that today in our day. Thousands of Christians are discovering it. And uh, we like to say they found home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? It seems to me that your book, the new book, Reimagining Church, is kind of broken up into these two uh, questions that I typically get in the first section and the second section. The first question I get is, well, you know, what, where do you meet and what does it look like? I mean, they really want to know, they may not say it just that way, but they really want to know, what do you guys do there? These folks uh, would argue that, you know, there are lots of examples of church meetings in the Book of Acts, and they'll, they'll do something that I thought you caught early in your book, and it's one of the most important sections of the book, I think, and I've used it with people now several times. It's in chapter two, where you make a list of the different types of meetings that occur in the scriptures. Because I think what typically happens is that people have have looked at a a given meeting that they saw in the book of Acts, and they've said, okay, that's the example of of what a church meeting looks like. When in fact, these were not meetings of of believers. These were different kinds of meetings. And you've listed them in in four groups, apostolic meetings, evangelistic meetings, decision-making meetings, and church meetings. And I always have people come to me and give me an example of one of the first three of those meetings— trying to define it as the fourth kind of meeting. Right, exactly. And it just doesn't work. Absolutely. And what's interesting about those first three meetings is that they're temporary. They don't continue on and on. That's right. Like your typical church service. The other thing, too, is if you look at them very carefully, you find a big disconnect in so many ways between those meetings and what goes on today in most modern churches. And then the third thing I would add to that is that what's really happening and I try to crack this mindset and paradigm in the book, what's really happening is we have all learned, and and I'm included in this, it took a long time for me to actually see I was doing this, but we have all learned to read back into the New Testament our own experience and version of institutional Christianity. Yeah. You know, if you're a Catholic, you read back into the New Testament, priests and nuns and mass (laughs) Uh, if you're a Baptist, you read back into the New Testament, every meeting is to get everybody saved, you know? Right. And mm-hmm. uh, and the Pentecostals read the New Testament, and all they see is signs and wonders, and that's what church is. So consequently, we bring into the text our own experience, and it takes a certain kind of breaking or a certain kind of enlightenment, I guess, in terms of recognizing this to get us to look at the New Testament with some fresh eyes and see that what they did is so very different from what we do in most of our churches today. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess what I would like to for people who who ask me that question, you know, what what's a church meeting look like? What do you do there? If that question is asked of you, Frank, what is your typical response? Well, my response is get on a plane and come out and visit one of the churches and spend a weekend and watch. And I do try to, after every chapter, describe the best I can using words. And words do fail us when you're trying to describe an experience. Yes, but I do try true. to describe 
a practical example of what I'm talking about in yeah. every chapter. And not only that, you you did that. So you did some of that also in pagan Christianity. So I, I thought that you know it's just it's one of those things, unfortunately, that um, the best justice we can do to this topic is to encourage people to get involved in the conversation as deeply as we are now by reading the books. Well, let me go to the second issue, though, Frank, because the second question I get all the time is, and you kind of get to this too. You, you phrase it a little differently than I typically hear. Maybe it's because I'm in Southern California, where where there seems to be here in Southern California a sense that uh, you know there aren't a lot of rules anyway. There's not a lot of uh, church culture that we're trying to strip us. Everything's happening out here. Every kind of crazy kind of church you can think of is out here in Southern California. So maybe that's part of the reason why it's phrased a little differently. But it typically would come back something like this. Um, who's kind of watching over you guys? Who Who is it who, uh, I mean, you know, gosh, is it, who do you answer to? You know, I mean, it, it's an authority issue. They want to know, am I this loose cannon, Jim Jones kind of type who's about to take them on a wild ride? Or is there anybody who I'm accountable to who's kind of, and you talk about it in terms of covering. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I dedicate about five or six chapters on that question itself, beginning with the whole issue of what is authority and submission in the New Testament, what is leadership from the New Testament perspective, and then this whole doctrine of covering, who is your covering. And, you know, I don't want to steal my own thunder, because I really would like people to get the book and read no, I carefully, because it's not something we can answer in detail and right. no, I agree. we have anyway. But I'll just say this. I'm going to make an observation. The groups that go off the rails the most are not groups outside the institutional church. They're groups that already have a hierarchy in place. They're groups that already have a pastor, a leader. They're groups that already have a structure, a building, all the things that institutional churches have. If you trace the history of cults historically, that's all it is. And the other question I would ask is this. Who's the covering of the pastor in the institutional church? And the answer would come back, well, you know, he, he has a board of elders. Okay, well, who's the covering of the elders? Well, um, that would be the denominational headquarters. Okay, well, who's the covering of the denominational headquarters? Silence. You see, every organization who pushes the covering question, they themselves, when you follow the chain of command... They don't have a covering. And the New Testament does give us an answer, and it's not just simply saying, well, Jesus is my covering. It's not that. It's much deeper and more profound than that, more practical. But the New Testament does give a very clear answer on our protection, both spiritually and morally, and I write about it in the book. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going uh, to go through all that with you as well, but I can tell you this. I've got a very similar approach when people ask me that question. And I'll be a little more bold maybe even than you will in this situation, which is fine because I've got less to risk, I think, than you do. But I can tell you that I always say to people, look, if we're doing something that's really closer to the heart of what it is that, that uh, the first century Christians kind of tapped into, coming right underneath the teaching of the apostles— then unfortunately, because of my size, it's only going to bless, say, you know, 30 or 40 people. If I'm a heretic, it's only going to damage 30 or 40 people. But my question is this, who is it who's watching someone, say, for example, like Joel Olstein, who's influencing millions, yeah. as though somehow a structure in place can prevent us from being heretics? And that doesn't always do that. Well, that's the thing. And if you even look at all the cults, as I said before, all the cults that are on the scene today, and I'm not going to name them, but you look at them, Every single one of them was part of a denominational system at one time. And yeah. basically they had followings, as you said, that were so large. And because of that, it affected so many more people, and movements began out of them. And, and again, I trace this whole thing in the book, but when we use the covering platitude, 
we're not really thinking about what that actually means. And as far as I'm concerned, there is far less accountability, if we want to use that term, in the institutional church than there is when a group of Christians are living in community together and they have shared lives and they are putting themselves under the headship of Jesus Christ and they are a close-knit community. There's far, far more accountability in that than anything I've ever seen or experienced in institutional Christianity. That's right. I think that in the other model that I was part of for so many years, it was very comfortable for people to sit underneath the teaching of a lead pastor who was the only one who really took the time to dig through the Scriptures, that had that kind of relationship with Christ that was a a dynamic, passionate relationship. So everyone just sat back and trusted, this guy is telling it to me, it must be true. But I want to be part of a community in which everyone has that passion. So as I come into that community with what I'm seeing in the Scripture, there's always somebody else in my midst who's just as passionate about the Scripture, just as learned, just as uh, involved and engaged in the Scripture, who's going to tell me, you know, Jim, you're wrong about that. Let me show you what I see. And they're able to kind of and, and be a can't. But the problem, of course, is you've got to surround yourself with passionate people who are in, in, the, in the Scriptures and are, have a relationship with Christ that's so dynamic, they don't come every week empty. They come with something to, to bring to the table. And that's, I think, different, I think, a different approach. A lot of us would have to admit at least this. When we go to church and we sit and look around at the people around us, there are a lot of folks who are simply attending. Oh, sure. Absolutely. The majority of them. Sure. Yeah. In and many of the larger churches. Well, let me just wrap this up with you, Frank, by just asking you, uh, sharing with you a little experience we're having right now that maybe will help other people see how to put feet to some of this, okay? We came out of the traditional church. And so as a, as a result, I'm going to tell you right now, I, I had some of this in my pocket. I had some of this I knew I wanted to change, but I really wasn't able to change all of it because I was still working through some of the issues myself. And because I had that baggage coming in, I would suggest that we were one of those first churches you described when you were describing different kinds of churches. We were a church that meets at my house, <laughs> okay? <laughs> a lot of the same structure, right. things I wasn't really happy in what I was seeing. I didn't feel like our people were really in a, as passionate as they could have been, as engaged. I felt like the I was still leading this rather than Christ being at the head of it. And so I've gone on this adventure now of trying to, to get to a place where we become an organism rather than an organization. So in your book, in the last part of your book, you actually have a, a chart that compares organism to organization. It's a great, it's, everyone should read, that's, that alone is worth the price of the book. If you've not thought through those issues in the past, that's worth getting the book, where you compare the institutional paradigm with the organic paradigm. I wanted to do that with my people too, and here's how we did it. I first started off by saying, list for me the attributes of your favorite restaurant. What makes a restaurant successful? And as everyone listed the things that make restaurants successful, like, you know, the food is consistent, the service is on time, there's entertainment in the restaurant, the the crowd's not too noisy or it's, you know, whatever it may be. Comfort is always the issue, you know, Uh, that they're open all around the clock, all these things, right? Then we said, okay, let's now describe the church using some of the pronouns that are used in the New Testament, like bride of Christ, body of Christ, the household of God, the family of God. And let's just use those pronouns. Let's list the attributes that come to mind when we use words like family of God. It turns out that the list from the, the restaurant has nothing at all to do with the list we find in Scripture used to describe the church. Yet typically, as a leader, the complaints that I continue to hear or the things that I continue to observe in terms of behavior fall in the restaurant category. 
I mean, I understand this, you know, or, or it's a matter of, um, it's not entertaining enough or it's too entertaining or it's, uh, they're all issues that really you would complain about if you were complaining about a restaurant. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I, I didn't know how to move them from what is, I want them to be passionate about the things that are in the pronouns used to describe the church and not passionate about the things that are offered by restaurants. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of this gets into what is the church for? And we in the West here, especially in America, we're consumers. You know, we consume automobiles, we consume food, we consume clothing, and uh, the church then becomes just another thing we consume. So many American Christians switch churches like they would socks, you know, whatever suits my needs at the given time. But the church, according to the New Testament, is not for you and me. It is for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's something for him. It is his bride. It is his body. To God the Father, it's his family. It is his house. And so consequently, if we can get a revelation of what the church really is in the eyes of God and what it's for, it changes our entire approach. And then the question of how we do church, how we practice the church, becomes very important. Because it's not about us anymore. It's about the Lord himself. In fact, there's an entire chapter in Reimagining Church called Reimagining the Eternal Purpose. And I talk about the eternal purpose of God. And the main point there is it's not about our needs. The gospel we've heard has been aimed specifically to the needs of human beings. And we have a God out here that's burning with an eternal purpose that's unto him. It is from him, it is through him, and it is to him. And the church is at the dead center of that eternal purpose. So this book, it really is, tries to prevent a vision, a picture, a portrait of the Church of the Living God that's rooted in the New Testament and in the nature of God himself. And I had a lot of my experiences over the last 20 years to kind of give teeth to it and to give feet to it to show that this isn't just armchair philosophy, but I've lived in organic church life for the last 20 years, and it is something that is possible in our day. And what we're finding, Jim, is that many people especially those who are out here outside the organized church that are just trying to start to meet under the headship of Christ, they're buying this book by the case because what's happening is they're being given a very clear vision as well as answers to all the common objections. They as a group are going through the book, and then they're giving it to all the visitors who, who say, what on earth are you guys doing? <laughs> right. Why are you doing it? All they do is they pull it out and say, here, read this. And now I'm making a major admission here, but that's the whole reason why I wrote the book, is because so many people throughout the years had asked me and others who I meet with, what on earth are you guys doing? Where's your pastor? Where's your covering? What denomination are you a part of? How come you don't have this? Why aren't you doing that? Why don't you have a building? Blah, 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 blah. And so consequently, you know, trying to answer those questions, because they're really they're endless, you know, is very difficult. But to hand someone something in the way of a book and say, here, read this, and what we're finding is that people are saying, whoa, you know what? This is what I've been looking for all my life. I just didn't know it, <laughs> you know? Right. So it's been very encouraging, and... Um, we're just really thrilled at, to see how God's people are taken to this book so far. So far, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, it's right now it's on the bestsellers on Amazon.com. It's the number one book in ecclesiology right now on Amazon. 
Well, then we better get this podcast on the air quickly so we can still make that claim, right? So we'll, yeah, we'll, right. we'll post that as soon as I can. But let me just thank you so much. And I cannot recommend to those of you listening these two books uh, more emphatically. Uh, and are there some controversies in these books? Yes. Are you going to agree with everything that Frank's talking about at first? No. Might you eventually, though, come around to his way of thinking? I think you might find yourself doing that. So I just want to thank you so much, Frank, for taking the time with us to, to, to be here today and talk about your new book. And I'm looking forward to the next book. I know you. You're pretty prolific. You're not going to stop writing. No, I, I still have a lot in me to say. And the next book is going to be a book that does not deal with church practice at all. It is a book that any Christian can read and will enjoy, whether they're a Catholic, a Protestant, a Eastern Orthodox, etc. And it's called From Eternity to Here. And it's all about God's eternal purpose and the mission of the church and the mission of God in the world. And I'll just say this, it takes a very, very unique look at this whole subject, one that uh, will be new to many people. Awesome. I can't wait to read it. And until then, Frank, we'll uh, look forward to talking to you again. I hope on that podcast you'll come back out and do another one with us, okay? I'd love to, buddy. Hey, thank you so much, Frank. I appreciate it.